You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak by telephone with J. Brent Bill, a Quaker minister, retreat leader, writing coach, and photographer. He's written more than 20 books, including his latest title, Beauty, Truth, Love, and Love, Four Essentials for the Abundant Life. That was life and love, not love and love. Did I say love and love? Yep. Okay. We'll get started with that show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Woodworks, performed by the Danish String Quartet. This is a piece called Jaspotspolska. Can you say that again? Jaspotspolska. Oh, very good. <laughs> This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. 
The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. This week on the show, Rob and I speak by telephone with Jay Brent Bill, a Quaker minister, a retreat leader, writing coach, and photographer. He's written more than 20 books, including Holy Silence, The Gift of Quaker Spirituality, Mind the Light, Learning to See with Spiritual Eyes, Life Lessons from a Bad Quaker, A Humble Stumble Towards Simplicity and Grace, and Finding God in the Verbs, Crafting a Fresh Language of Prayer. Brent has served as a local church pastor, denominational executive, seminary faculty member, and go-kart track operator. He lives on Plowshares Farm, which is 40 acres of former farmland being reclaimed to tall grass prairie and native hardwood forests in Indiana. His latest book is Beauty, Truth, Life, and Love, Four Essentials for the Abundant Life. Do you long to live the abundant life that Jesus promised his followers? If so, then you will want to weave the threads of beauty, truth, life, and love into the tapestry of your life. When these essentials are each present in some measure in our relationships, ministries, vocations, and life choices, then we are more likely to find ourselves living a good and abundant life with God. Jay Brent Bill, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Well, thanks so much, Stu. It's wonderful to to have you on, and we're going to begin with the the question we ask uh, all our guests uh, now on their first uh, conversation with us, and that is to invite you to uh, uh, look back at uh, youth and childhood and ask yourself if there are any uh, moments that stick out that acted, you could say now, as harbingers, as precursors to the career as a Quaker minister, practitioner, uh, writer, etc., that you've had. So anything anything pop up for you about that? I'm not sure that there's uh, any major one or two. I grew up in a uh, very loving uh, Quaker community, and... Uh, um, there were so many examples of uh, people whose lives uh, seemed to reflect uh, what Quakers would call the light of God within them. That uh, that just called to me. Um, Lucky you too. Uh, they, uh, they seemed uh, much more uh, peaceful and kind and loving and still in their spirit than I ever was. Uh, <laughs> And I long to be that, so um, to to be a witness of their lives uh, in general, day in and day out, was what most spoke to me. How 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 old were you when you would have been able to say something like that? Maybe not as eloquently as you just did, but <laughs> when you when you first would have yeah. become aware of of that impulse in you, do you think? I think yeah. Uh, the first time I, I sort of remember that was uh, when I was 11 years old and had my tonsils out, and, uh, of all things. And I was so sick in the hospital, just back in the days when they used ether. And uh, it seemed like every time I opened my eyes from my horrible ether dreams, uh, our Quaker minister was sitting at my bedside. Mm. And I thought, 
why would um, in an important man like this, important person who has uh, so much to do, come at my <laughs> the bedside of a kid who keeps puking his guts out? <laughs> uh, that, that's real love. Um, could I ever love like that? And he was just so patient about it. And uh, I think that was one of the first hearings where I began to to think in my heart about what what does that mean to what is that about those kind of people that uh, makes them that way uh, that has led them in that way hmm. and I speak about him in the new book uh, Beauty Truth Life and Love his name was uh, uh, Leonard Wines got it so um, so um, that was um, obviously. Uh, something that made a, a strong impression on you, and you, and you speak mm-hmm. also of living in this um, this very loving family and and congregation, I guess, um, yeah. being influenced yeah. by that. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm not a Quaker myself, so I don't know uh, some of the uh, customs. But were you were you going to meetings as a child before that? Before the age of eleven? Yes, uh, I went my whole life. Um, friends are always encouraged. Uh, friends as Quakers are mm-hmm. formally known. Uh, right. um, have always believed uh, that that uh, folks of all ages can be open to experiences of God, no matter what age they are. Mm-hmm. And even as uh, so, we were taken to meeting as as very young people. I have lots of pictures of me as a babe in arms attending meeting and then growing up in in the meeting uh, being taught to listen for the voice of god hmm. you know there there's a number of different flavors of quaker mm-hmm. practice that are um extant today in america and um i've heard of the evangelical uh quaker sort of yes. sector in uh, and I, I knew that it was uh, roughly located in Indiana because one of our co-founders of our bookstore is a, a Quaker and so I've learned a lot about the uh, Quaker tradition but I haven't ac- actually had an occasion to talk to someone about that so I'm, I'm interested because so many people who might be listening to this you know they they'll, they'll have a very a variety of experiences of uh, the the Quaker tradition I'm wondering if sure. you could maybe just speak a little bit about that. That you're coming out of, um, and when I say evangelical, I mean it's still a Quaker tradition, and it still, uh, yeah. uh, you know, goes back to George Fox and the uh, early tradition in England. But there's a much greater center of gravity around Scripture and um, what we might traditionally, you know, think in other religions as you know the, the or other Christian uh, denominations as the uh, the the core source material, whereas in some other uh, 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 modern Quaker meetings, scripture hardly plays a strong part, and uh, uh, the the sitting and the uh, leadings are the the primary center of gravity. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about that, just to kind of give a sense of the background and the and the community that you came out of, because I found that just very interesting in reading your books, the 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 degree to which um, there was a scriptural mes- message that fits so nicely with what I already understood to be the Quaker tradition. Yes, uh, I mean, for many, many years, Quakers uh, sort of had a uniform 
practice of, of worship that was uh, non-pastoral um, and met in silence, uh, waiting to listen for the voice of God. And then in the 19th century, varieties <laughs> or flavors sort of sprung up as uh, folks moved into the Enlightenment, Enlightenment movement, uh, the movement of reason, uh, and also the the English evangelical movements uh, like Wesley and others began to influence uh, uh, primarily American uh, Quakers. And so by the end of the 19th century, there were pretty much three distinct uh, flavors of Quakerism, as I would call them, all rooted in Quaker uh, tradition and belief in many ways, but practicing it different. And one is uh, the more liberal tradition, uh, which many friends know, um, or many people who know something about Quakers tend to think of a, a group of people who worship in silence and are fairly uh, open across theological spectrum um, and very active in social justice and other causes. Mm-hmm. And and there are uh, what's called the conservative friends, which are not to be con- confused with evangelical friends. They're conservative in the sense that they hold to the old ways of Quakers. They are still very uh, centered in the Bible and Jesus Christ, but they uh, many of them hold to the uh, old plain language that Quakers used of uh, thee and thou mm-hmm. and... Uh, and dress very plainly. It's a, it's not a very large group, but it's it's still one of the main groups. And then there's the pastoral branch of friends, which started in the uh, late 19th century during a revivalist uh, era that swept from the actually the East Coast all the way through the Midwest, and um, a great number of folks joined Quaker congregations, and so. Uh, some of those congregations, Quaker meetings, began to invite uh, people to stay and provide pastoral care uh, with some remuneration to educate these converts into the way of Quakerism. And uh, that movement is the one I grew up in. It, it's fairly conservative theologically. Um, it does have a lot of emphasis on what does the Bible say, as well as what is the Spirit speaking to us, uh, and depending on uh, the particular local meeting or uh, group of meetings, it can be um, conservative um, as far as social justice issues or very active. I mean, my own meeting here in Indiana is uh, a meeting that used to be a pastoral meeting and no longer is. Um and is very active in social justice and peace issues. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a quick overview oh, I, I appreciate uh, that. of Quakers in America. Well, I, um, uh, taking <laughs> off from that, I'm wondering um, um, about your own uh, position within that, that spectrum that you just uh, briefly <laughs> described, uh, because uh, one of the notable things about reading your books is um, the vast, uh, the wide array of people that you quote, 
from all kinds of traditions, um, mm-hmm. Christian and beyond. And um, and so I'm uh, 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 I don't know if that's your, in your capacity as a writer specifically, but I get the impression that you and you actually say it seems to me in uh, in, the, in your books that you you're uh, you you spend time reading, and I get the impression that it's you spend time reading from a wide variety of inspirational uh, source materials. Um, so tell tell us a little bit about that aspect of your background, if you will. Yes, uh, I mean, though I grew up in the evangelical tradition and very much appreciate some of uh, of what I learned in it, uh, especially uh, uh, how to read, uh, reading the Bible and uh, the importance that that's had to people of faith uh, in the Christian and, and Hebrew traditions over, uh, you know, centuries, millennia. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to have that context is important. Um, but as I've uh, grown and been able to travel among varieties of friends, and indeed I grew up um, in a Roman Catholic neighborhood. We were the only, quote, Protestant family hmm. on our street. Um, so I always had exposure to other uh Another faith tradition that was uh, seems a long way from Quakerism. I I don't consider it that far in the sense that I find both Catholicism and Quakerism highly sacramental, but at different ends of the sacrament spectrum. Mm. Um, and then uh, I also was introduced to Judaism at a, at an early age when our Congregations would go. We we would visit different uh, faith traditions uh, in the Christian tradition, and then also we attended temple and met with uh, rabbis who would explain faith their faith practices to us. And so throughout my life, fortunately, I've been introduced to a spec a wide spectrum of faith, which I was taught to appreciate, even our even our fairly evangelical congregation. And I learned so much that it was like, how can I deny uh, the truth in these pieces? And they speak to my condition, and and they always have. Um, And so I consider myself in the Quaker tradition as, as one who appreciates the breadth of Quaker experience from uh, very liberal to very conservative, but also the breadth in uh, religion around the world. And uh, the things that I've read that have enhanced my soul seem uh, important for me to acknowledge and share uh, wherever they've come from. Thank you. Uh, um, uh, so I, I want to get you to elaborate a little further on one of the points you just mentioned, which is um, mm-hmm. the the, uh, the range of of uh, sacramental appreciation, I guess, between at, at one pole in Christianity, Catholicism, and at the other pole, you said um, the uh, Friends tradition. So um, mm-hmm. could you could you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I think, you know, we think of uh, Catholicism and uh, Anglicanism, Episcopalian, as uh, folks have a high view of sacrament. 
um, that because they name the sacraments and celebrate them in a very excuse <laughs> a very <laughs> have this horrible cold um, a very ritualized and specific way, and that is the centerpiece. Uh, you know, the, of uh, the Christian Mass, the elevation of the host is the central piece of Catholicism. You know, Christ is is not just sort of present, but is is really thought to be present in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. At the other end, we have Quakers who don't celebrate any uh, named sacraments. You know, there there is theological and historical reasons for that, which mm-hmm. are interesting mostly to Quakers. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, but because of the time we we formed, we disavowed all outward rituals and priests and rites. But we did that because the spiritual sacraments that are all around us were so important that we had to lift them up and acknowledge them as happening in our souls and spirits constantly, not just at certain times. And so that's why I say uh, both of those groups have a high view of Hmm. the sacramental life. They just have different expressions. Uh, Quakers certainly believe any meal can be a sacramental meal. Got it. Um, that Christ can be fully present in the silence of a Quaker meeting worship in the same way that, that Catholics believe that Christ is fully present in, in, the, in the Blessed Host. So one of the uh, activities I, I saw in at least one list of your, in uh, one of your CVs was that uh, you've led uh, retreats on silence. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk about this a little bit with you because, um, you know, one of the distinguishing factors, as I understand it, of the Quaker tradition is this idea of meeting in silence, you know, where someone's not talking at you. It's not exactly prayer, but but it, it, it has uh, elements of, uh, uh, of what might be recognizable as meditation or a kind of listening that you see in some of the contemplative practices in, in Episcopalianism and Catholicism. And, mm-hmm. and I was just interested in, you know, the, I guess your, your take on, in a sense, as a sacrament, as a, in a sense, as a central and important, uh, aspect of, are yearning to uh, reach or be in contact with divinity, how silence is, a, uh, how, what role it plays, and how, how you see it. Well, a sacrament, as I understand it, one of my favorite definitions is by a fellow named Leland Riken, who talks about it. a sacrament is something that makes uh, any means of grace visible to us and real to us. Mm. Um, and in that sense, so we don't see silence, it feels to me that it can be very sacramental in the sense that um, we um, 
the friends began silence not as a way to just get quiet. They really believed that they were stepping beyond rites and rituals and prepared sermons in silence so they could hear the voice of, of the living Christ, the living teacher. They had all kinds of euphemisms that they used, and, and many friends still use, that, that Christ has come to teach his people himself. And so we could only hear the voice of our present teacher in silence. Now, that silence might be broken by somebody sharing a message, but first, we had to, to be silent and open our spiritual ears enough and quiet our minds enough to be able to hear that. It wasn't a matter of achieving silence for silence's sake, but a, me- a means of achieving silence so that we could truly listen. And in that way, it became a sacrament, although Quakers wouldn't, wouldn't as such call it that. Mm-hmm. Well, one one um, uh, observation I've heard from uh, some Quakers, particularly in uh, some of the the liberal Quaker uh, meetings, is that the silence more and more, particularly in times that are fraught with uh, political concerns, uh, like the present time, that the the, the silence is often. Uh, 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 met with a lot of anxiety being e- expressed in the form of political concerns. And the frustration is that, in a way, the realm of politics is, uh, in a sense, the realm of Caesar. And it, in, in, in some ways, sometimes using the that context or that sacrament as a vehicle for kind of discharging a lot of anxiety associated with politics is uh, yeah. at cross-purposes to the kind of listening that you were describing. And, and I would agree. Uh, actually, a friend of mine uh, who is head of uh, liberal friends in the United States and Canada, Barry Crosnow, uh, and I just wrote a book on vocal ministry uh, and what it is and what it isn't. And um, in the context of uh, Quaker meeting and how to judge whether what we're saying is something prophetic in light of the current uh, situation confronting uh, the community or our nation and what is, uh, um, this may sound kind, but what is just a political rant or a venting. Right. And so how to sit in stillness to really say, is what I have to offer a prophetic message that's going to be helpful and move us in direction that we think God uh, the divine, the spirit, the light within us would have us move, or is it just me voicing my opinion? And and to make and um, how do friends make sure uh, that we encourage our people to give true ministry out of this silence so it's not broken? Mm-hmm. Um, friends, uh, one of the uh, best teachings that I got as a young adult friend in college, was uh, to never speak unless I could improve the silence. <laughs> and uh, I think it's especially in these dangerous times, uh, given the political situation, that's really good advi- advice. Uh, 
Am I going to improve the silence and call it into uh, deeper faith and obedience to that which is outside ourselves, or is this uh, me just wanting to get something off the chest? Yeah, and that and that's uh, uh, when I saw that you had actually been leading workshops on silence. It reminded me of uh, a friend of ours who has um, started uh, uh, offering meetings for silence uh, that are that don't have a leading aspect. They're just sitting in silence, and the, the intent mm-hmm. there the intent there is really to kind of reacquaint people with the practice of silence, such that they can. Uh, distinguish in the way that you're describing be, uh, a leading from a venting. That's great. Yeah, we need it, more of that. Yeah, it's a, that's what I uh, we, we've been encouraging him because it seems like uh, they're they're. I think a lot of people are frustrated uh, because they, they 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 as it were you know they want more leading and less venting and yet you know it's, it's sometimes hard. To you know, you don't want to shut people down uh, in in that kind of context. So having a meeting a meeting for silence was just you know kind of like created a boundary condition. You know, he sort of said it was sort of like the you know like a meeting for planning. You know, so it's it's just here's the here's here's what we're doing, and and it, and a lot of people who have been frustrated by that kind of aspect or you know of you know being in the kind of held hostage to a ranting where you you don't even have the context to respond uh find that as a, a great resource so it's it, it was a, I, mm-hmm. I i found an interesting question i was, i appreciate you um uh i appreciate you uh you know sharing your insights on that and i think one of the things uh, meetings can do and that we're fearful of is that we can uh work with people who give messages that are uh, seemingly uh, a bit out of order in that sense of what meeting for worship is and invite them to have a discussion group after meeting. You know, there are times to have those discussions where we can share. Right. But what's the difference between sitting in silence where we're trying to collectively listen to the truth, which we think uh, is going to come from beyond us, if we will all sit silent still and listen together. Thank you. Um, I, so that leads me to another question about your own experience, um, and that, that is your experience as a Quaker minister. So um, you were talking about the different um, sub traditions, I guess, in w- within the, f- mm-hmm. the community of friends, and and I'm wondering um, what what did you, I guess. How did you conceive of um, the role of a of a minister? How did your conception change as you became responsible to offer that um, as a um, as you got into it? Yeah. Well, I suppose as a young person, I saw it uh, very much as a kind of traditional pastoral role in any congregation. Uh, Quakers aren't always very good at articulating um, uh, their faith practices to their next generation and what what would be the difference between a Quaker pastor and a Lutheran pastor. Hmm. And, uh, and so I did follow a fairly uh, 
what I guess would be considered a traditional route of going to college and seminary. Um, and early on in my very first meeting, uh, as uh, the the what I call the release minister, I was paid uh, to be to provide pastoral care to uh, help organize worship to serve. You know, as a uh, a kind of spiritual guide, if you will, uh, I quickly learned early on that that was not uh, a CEO of a of an organization. It was a call to servant leadership, and um, one of uh, one of the elders in the meeting um, at that time he was probably forty, and I was thirty. Uh, we were driving one day, and uh, his name was Donald Peacock, which is a, that's a, that's a long uh, Quaker name with a long history. Peacock, which sounds very interesting for Quakers, since we're known for dressing plainly. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but Don Peacock looked at me one day as we're driving out through the country, and he goes, "You know, Brent, you're the smartest um, pastor we've ever had." And I kind of puffed up in myself <laughs> because and we'll survive we'll survive you too. <laughs> and um, and I thought about that. I mean it it kind of rankled me because I was young and knew everything. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more true that became. I was not there. I would be there a few years and they would be there their whole lives. And they had the witness in that community that I would never have. And so my role had to be to enable them to fulfill their ministry and to learn uh, to be quiet and listen to them as I listen to God. And so to try and be an enabler. And that has guided uh, my ministry ever since. Now, I will have to admit to being a type A uh, know-it-all even to this day. And so that's a lifelong kind of learning that I have to continually do is to uh, listen three times before I speak once, <laughs> to step back and really um, listen and listen and make sure I've heard and not just with my ears, but with my soul, before I offer too much. Um, and to be uh, Howard Thurman, the great black minister of the 20th century, I heard he often ended his sermons with, um, that's what I think, it might be so. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of guided me ever since. To, to say, I'm trying to be faithful. This is what I think I offer it to you. Well, that's nice. Um, it also reminds me of, uh, you know, Stuart and I uh, practice in a tradition uh, that is heavily influenced by the Fourth Way tradition, the Gurdjieffian yeah. work. And um, But our teacher, our founder, was, was um, very strong in uh, in his belief that being able to hear um, other people was utterly crucial to 
um, being able um, to do anything, anything real in the world, because um, so you know his assertion was that so much of uh, what we think we see in other people is a projection, and so to to, to mm -hmm. be so to be able to be present to what they're actually up to um, requires um, a, 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 a specific practice of listening. And um, so this, that, what you just had to say um, uh, re uh, certainly is reminiscent of that for me and, um, and also uh, resonates strongly. Well, uh, you know, part of that comes from, for us, comes from the Quaker belief uh, from our earliest days that there is uh, that light of God in each person that uh, there is something, uh, the seed, as uh, some early friends called it, the seed of God planted it, is, that calls us to the divine. And our, uh, if there is that of God in each person, uh, then the, the, the addition, the audacious plot is that uh, God could speak to them as surely as God speaks to me, which means I better pay attention and listen to them. Um, it's hard to believe that God would speak to them as clearly as God speaks to me, but <laughs> I have to allow for that possibility. Who knows what could happen? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that's, that's wonderful. Uh, so, um, so I guess I, I guess uh, an additional question comes up in regard to that. So, you, uh, you know, Stuart was just asking you about. Um, your work as a retreat leader, silent retreat leader, and presumably other uh, forms as well. And and I'm wondering if if uh, the primary audiences in your retreats have been um, other friends, other Quakers, or or if you have um, a wide range of uh, people with a wide range of spiritual backgrounds in those retreats that you get to interact with. Yes, uh, well, there are a fair number of friends who who attend my retreats, and many of them are held at uh, Quaker retreat centers and so forth. But uh, I do, I have led retreats for other groups uh, all across the United States and Canada. So uh, actually, most of my readership uh, for the books I write are non-Quakers. Uh, I'm not writing uh, for Quakers, per se. Uh, <laughs> I sort of trust that uh, Quakers, since they uh, they like books, and <laughs> almost every Quaker seems to have written a book, will probably pick them up and buy them. So I don't need to write for them. Uh, they'll write it. They'll read it and tell me where I was wrong anyhow. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I really, I think, uh, in the same way I've learned uh, from Episcopal tradition, Roman Catholic tradition, my Lutheran friends, my Buddhist friends, um, their interpretations for people who are not part of that tradition, uh, that's what I want to offer through my writings is sort of wisdom from the Quaker way that can be a, applicable to, uh, to to the reader no matter where um, the reader is in their, their faith journey or if they're even on a faith journey, something that might might spark um, uh, a sense of uh, 
of wonder and awe and perhaps the awareness that there might be some spark of the divine that could be responded to. And I don't care what tradition that is particularly. Um, <laughs> so I, I just try to make these little offerings as a, a pilgrim along life, fellow pilgrim along life's way. And here's a few things I've learned and I, I offer them to you if they're helpful. Got it. Well, uh, um, I mean, I note that the two books that uh, we read uh, in preparation for our conversation with you today were both uh, published by Paraclete Press, which is a yes. Catholic press, I believe. So, um, Well, it's actually ecumenical. Is it? Okay. Um, yes. It is a Benedictine. It's owned by the Community of Jesus, which is a Benedictine community, but it's not Catholic. It's, oh, huh. a, it's an ecumenical okay. uh, community. So well, I appreciate the correction. Yeah, they're Catholics, Baptists, Lutherans. It's a very interesting, uh, it's an amazing group of people. Cool. Great. Well, I thought maybe this is a good time to um, uh, turn our attention to questions around your most recent book, which is mm-hmm. uh, Beauty, Truth, Life and Love for Essentials for an Abundant Life. And, um, you know, one, there are some interesting distinctions in the book, and there's some really uh, wonderful just reflections. And I, I guess I'll say my, my – I'll just share my, my own sense in reading it as I, I really enjoyed the book because it was uh, – you were sharing wisdom, but it was really universal wisdom. It really it, – it was not couched in a – in a particular tradition point of view and 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 I think it is very useful it was occasions for um, uh, me to you know reflect upon and meditate upon uh, issues in my life and you know uh, what I'm about and what I'm doing and uh, ask some of the questions that you both show that you asked yourself and uh, and so I appreciated that and I wanted to share that before we get into the details here thank you but the um, you know one of one of the distinctions that um, you start with even in the at the title is this notion of an abundant life, and in the book you kind of draw this contrast between uh, uh, an abundant life and uh, an abundance life, and so may, maybe you could uh, uh, riff on that for a little bit. <coughs> Certainly. Well. Uh... It does seem, and I do, of course, do some, uh, I quote from the World Happiness Survey that they do every couple of years, um, that for all the things that we seem to have in the United States, we don't seem to feel very fulfilled or happy. Uh, We seem to be in an acquisitional kind of mindset, as if that brings abundance. And it certainly brings abundance. I mean, we have more and more stuff. And not that um, I'm uncritical myself. I think of uh, Jesus' story about the farmer who kept building bigger and bigger barns uh, to house more and more of his stuff. Um, and I build more and more bookshelves, <laughs> sold more and more of my books that I can't I know the to. feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, my kids are... When I pass away, or you know, what are we going to do with this? But um, <laughs> there's a sense that we acquire 
to acquire, thinking that it's going to bring us some kind of satisfaction. And it probably does bring a satisfaction, but it's not a soulful satisfaction. It's not one that states it. And I think that's the difference between an abundant life and what uh, Jesus talked about when he said, I came that you might have life abundantly. That his abundant life, regardless of what the prosperity preachers would hold forth on television and other places, is not about acquisitions and material goods, but are about the things that satisfy our souls. And we know upon reflection that those are are more intangible sorts of things. When we stop and reflect, we can begin to name them. The love of, of uh, good friends and family, the satisfaction of a, a wonderful conversation, a chance in our lives to behold beauty around us, uh, the chance to be, the opportunity to be of assistance to a person in need, not out of obligation, but because we truly love and want to serve, then those things uh, bring us the satisfaction that buying uh, a new Mercedes or Tesla is not going to bring us. <laughs> well, maybe maybe the Tesla. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> if we buy it for the right reason, <laughs> not just to show off that we've got the Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just jealous because I have a friend who just got one. <laughs> yeah. I see them around, and uh, I have a 20-year-old car. <laughs> Well, let me uh, let me uh, tr- before we get into into the specific uh, beauty, truth, life, and love uh, in the book. Um, I, I want to just make a comment um, about both both this book and and the other book of yours I read, Mind Delight. And both of them, uh, in both of them, you use uh, a a particular device that I, that I. I've seen something like it occasionally in, in other in other books, but this one, uh, I, but the way you do it is seems very um, uh, appropriate to your writing style, or, or it's integrated well at least. And that's to and scatter these little meditations throughout the book, invitations to the reader to take a more and and they have the effect of having the reader take a more active role in the book than just so, simply consuming the words on the page. Mm-hmm. And um and I'm wondering um if if this is something that you uh why I mean I'm wondering how it is that that came to be that you <laughs> that that your um writing style incorporates that. Well, that, that was something that began with uh, Holy Silence. Mm-hmm. Um, I completed the manuscript and turned it in, and uh, and it didn't have those pauses. Mm-hmm. And my editor, uh, Lil Caban, who is still my favorite editor, because mm-hmm. um, she pushes me all the time. Mm-hmm. To make me better, uh, she she loved the book. So this is wonderful, but you have so much here 
what did we do to invite the reader into the material more fully? Hmm. So they're not just spectators. And I began to think of that as uh, reading as a, uh, as a kind of one-way conversation. It's always one way. I mean, I, I say my part, and you uh, read it, and you're thinking your part, but I never get to hear it. Mm-hmm. And is there a way to do that? And and frankly, I was written out at that point. And I just said, I don't, you know, the deadline, I turned it in on deadline. You know, I, I, I'm brain dead. Can I come up with? <laughs> and uh, she said, uh, so how much time do you think you would need to think about this for? And I said, I need a couple of weeks. I just need. Some time to go to the movies, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just relax, do something where I'm not thinking about the book. And she said, okay, you have it. Yeah, I'll, I'll push the deadlines back. And so that night, uh, looking forward to going to the movies the next day. Uh, in the middle of the night, I woke up and I thought about the Quaker concept of query. And Quakers, uh, as non-creedal, don't have a creed that we all subscribe to and stand up and recite or whatever. Mm-hmm. But over the years, we developed this practice of ask, of asking queries, which are spiritual questions, which uh, uh, invite us to examine our souls and where we are in the present moment around certain topics or issues or whatever. And I thought, I wonder if those might work as ways to break up the chapter and invite the reader into what was just uh, what the reader just read mm-hmm. uh, as a way to actually then practice or reflect on it. And so I took the the first full chapter and came up with queries. And wrote the little interludes called Quietude Rest, is what they were called in that book. Mm -hmm. It invited the person to take, to relax their body, mind, and spirit, to take some deep breaths, put the book down, and think about, and then the query. And uh, so I sent the chapter off to Lil, and she goes, that's it. And so I went back and did that through the whole book. And every book I've written since then uh, as a solo author I've done that mm-hmm. because uh, those received such a good response from so many readers early on with uh, Holy Silence mm-hmm. that people said that that was the thing that really helped them get into the meat of the book and practice what was being said as more than theory but how it really impacted their lives. That, that, now, then there's, then there's my daughter who said, you know, I never did finish that book because 
every two pages you say, put down the book, <laughs> and close your eyes. And she goes, and then I fall asleep. But that's, that's my daughter. So, yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know who raised her like that. <laughs> Indeed. But, um, I, I mean, I noticed actually there is a different distinction between Mind the Light, those, those uh, you call them illuminating moments because the title yes. is Mind the Light. But but you don't have the instruction to put down the book in in those. You do have yeah, the instruction I to put in them. that book. Uh, but I picked them back out for the others. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's actually a, a, a really effective invitation. I mean, the reader doesn't have to do what you say. You're inviting no. them to do that. Yes. But um, but if they do, then they get to. Um, uh, participate in a different way. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a good way of being mindful and being in the moment of what we've just read. Yeah. Instead of it's 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 kind of another way of spiritually highlighting what was just read, except no yellow marker. Yeah, and also it it, it helps people actually take it in deeper. I mean, we we have a tendency to consume information. And, you know, just get to the next paragraph. And so if you stop and pause and actually ponder, I think, you know, the feel, mm-hmm. I think I think it's possible to connect with the feeling of the book a lot more readily by doing that. Yeah, and you, and you, and you actually uh, sometimes, I mean, after I got into the, uh, understood the rhythm of how you were doing, using this, this particular um, device throughout each of the books, I realized, you know, I, I would imagine ahead what the next question you're going to invite people <laughs> to. <laughs> and sometimes I was wrong, and I and I appreciate that 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 was a skillful um, way to way to approach it. Um, and other times, no, I, I could pretty pretty much predict um, yeah. what what uh, what you were going to suggest. It was a kind of sneaky Quaker liturgy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I kind of assumed that that, that was that that was the case, but uh, but but I still stand by my earlier assertion that that it it, it um, invites a it invites the reader not just to be a consumer but to be active, and and that is I mean even though. I mean, most of us don't think, uh, perhaps, of of uh, a meditation as active. In fact, I, I, I would I would assert that meditation is quite an active um, um, thing, engagement, and um, and uh, and the other thing that the other I don't know if it's a device, but the other way that you have writ that you tend to write, I've noticed, in addition to bringing in lots of quotes. You know, of uh, from people with a lot of uh, from many different backgrounds, is that you bring in these uh, so many uh, personal anecdotes to illustrate the points that you're trying to make. I'm just sort of uh, uh, we're about to hit the hour here, and I and I didn't want to uh, break up the discussion of the book itself, so I'm so sort of reflecting on how you actually wrote, and then we can at the uh, top of the hour sort of. Uh, um, we'll get into take, the details. We'll get into the details in the next in the next hour. But but I, I do I want to underscore that last comment that Rob mentioned because you you say explicitly in Beauty, Truth, Life, and Love that um, as you talk about your 
experiences of uh, writing and, and learning to write and, and the feedback that you got that you found that, you know, if you could, you had to be honest, you had to bring yourself into the story in a way to uh, really let the passion flow. And mm-hmm. and I think that the you know, in this book it, it was very, very uh, uh well, at least for me, very well received because it. Uh, I think it encourages us to more so to reflect on the same challenges that you were reflecting on. Yeah, thank you. So, anything, any, any uh, since 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 we're on this uh, point and we have just a couple more minutes, um, I'm wondering if there's any other. I mean, you have uh, when Stuart read your your biographical material, writing coach was one of the uh, um, topics, and I'm wondering how you how you facilitate that um, when you when you do that activity. Is that is that something like you you're a teacher in a class or you do individual coaching? How does that work? I have done uh, I I um, individual coaching, but I also do, I lead a lot of. Uh, writing classes for different organizations um, and one of the the courses I lead is uh, writing from art uh, soulful creativity mm-hmm. and uh, it is really geared around uh, how we get out of our heads mm-hmm. and write more from our our uh, hearts and our bodies both our, our guts and our our hearts uh, trusting our hearts to be wise, and how to be uh, tell uh, important stories that will invite uh, the readers to engage uh, in a way that they won't engage uh, if we just put out lots of deep thought sort of thing. I mean, spiritual writing has changed so much over the last yeah, from 50 years ago, where it was a lot of expert writing on uh, mm. whatever topic it was, Tillich or John Theology or Rufus Jones on mysticism or, or whatever, where they were expert voices telling us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think people today want more of an invitation into an experience. Mm. And so our personal experiences, uh, while they're personal, also invite, uh, they have a universal aspect to them that invites uh, a reader, if we do them well, into their own. Uh, Of course, the trick is learning not to uh, make it all about you, per se, but about the story and what uh, your encounter meant to you so that the the reader can, can think of a story or an event uh, that was similar in their lives and why it meant so much to them. Got it. Well, we uh, will get into uh, beauty, truth, life, and love, uh, and in the in the next hour or so. Uh, right now, I'm going to turn you over to uh, Rob offline, and um, and then uh, we will. I'll do some announcements, and we'll get back into it. So, thank you so much. Great. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. 
Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak by telephone with J. Brent Bill, a Quaker minister, retreat leader, writing coach, and photographer. He's written more than 20 books, including his latest, Beauty, Truth, Life, and Love, Four Essentials for the Abundant Life. We'll return to our show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Woodworks, performed by the Danish String Quartet. This is a piece called The Honest Bridal Couple, also known as Sonderho Bridal Trilogy, Part 1.
Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, Rob and I speak by telephone with J. Brent Bill, a Quaker minister, retreat leader, writing coach, and photographer. He's written more than 20 books, including his latest, Beauty, Truth, Life, and Love, Four Essentials for the Abundant Life, which we'll be getting into in this next section of the show. And, in fact, um, that's what I want to start off um, asking you about, uh, the beginning of that book. Um, you'd, in the beginning of it, you, you talk about these four uh, principles um, of being, how to be guided um, um, and um, in making decisions. So... So those, those they're really interesting questions, and and the order of them is interesting too to me. So you say, was there beauty in, in a proposed direction to pursue? Is it that direction true to who I was? You ask, what it would would it be life giving? And does my interest in it come from love? I'm paraphrasing slightly here. Um, those are good paraphrases. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so. Um, uh, and I find, and, and I'm, I was just so enchanted with the fact that you start with beauty because I, uh, whatever else you might want to say about, um, life in the 21st century, it seems as if, um, beauty gets short shrift, in public conversations these days, in fact, um, is often um, uh, art, artists even have have in many cases, in many um, you know, in many pursuits, even eschew or or, or put yeah. aside considerations of beauty as if, as if that is, or and it ought to be ancillary, a side issue at best. Um, and here you are proclaiming, um, is there beauty in it? And I, and I just um, um, really deeply appreciate it. So, I, so I want to, um, I want to, uh, I want you to discuss beauty. Um, and there's a, there's a particular point I'll bring up um, if you don't get to it yourself. But um, why did you start with uh, beauty? How did how did that occur for you? Well, uh, partly was because of what you you've already mentioned i think our our uh, postmodern society uh devalues beauty um and in fact society at large uh places so little emphasis on it these days um we're we're very much involved with uh production uh outcomes um Meaning they, uh, in our businesses or in our social justice work or whatever it is, uh, that we have kind of lost this sense of, um, uh, that we might actually be called to create something positive and beautiful in this world. Hmm. Um, and that we are also meant to behold beauty and be able to stand in awe at times. But we 
uh, are so busy rushing from experience to experience or uh, from entertainment to entertainment um, that often we uh, have not encouraged each other, even in spiritual uh, kind of gatherings, to look for beauty. Um, behold what is beautiful around us. Uh, and to issue it for more uh, important quote, things. And, and I just, I, I think uh, that is much to our detriment uh, as a society and as individuals uh, that uh, this inability to, to see ourselves as beholders of beauty and even creators of beauty, whether it be uh, uh, creating a book, you know, writing a book, uh, making photographs, uh, just witnessing a sunset or a deer walk up out of the woods, or uh, creating uh, order out of a chaotic situation at work. It could be a form of creating beauty uh, that may be, in effect, uh, both productive, but it can be beautiful if we're doing it as an act of creative beauty because it brings out uh, this order and worth in the vid- in the individuals with whom we're working. That makes a lot of sense to me. I, I'm, I, as you were just saying that, especially the last part, um, I was just thinking, you know, I really love to clean up the kitchen so that it's beautiful after the, after making a meal, consuming the meal, etc. There's something about leaving the kitchen, you know, after after cleaning up after dinner and leaving it in in a, in a in a state of beauty as opposed to, you know, I can remember many years ago I, I would because I felt like I was so busy to get back to this point that point you're making. You know, I would I would just say, oh, I don't have the energy, and I would just leave the kitchen, leave things stacked in the sink, and and so forth. But the, but I've come in recent years to just really, it's like the time is worth it to me to to get get the kitchen and leave it in in a state of 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 order, which is beautiful, and and um um. I don't know. Maybe that's just because I'm older or something, but I've uh, but I've come to realize that 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 finding um, the moments of beauty um, is is more and more is, is something I appreciate more and more. And I think that's what you're saying here too. Yes, I, I do, and I think we each find it in different different uh, ways, and so we need to encourage people of um, in ways of looking. For beauty, what what is beautiful to them? Uh, what nurtures their soul in a way that uh, says this is some, coming from something uh, even just beyond me and my own enjoyment? But there's there's a connection with universal human condition through beauty. I believe. Yeah. Uh, when we listen to certain phrases of music or. Uh, Stand in awe of looking at the stars at night. We're not the only ones doing that. Uh, how do it, you know? It connects us both with the composer, the people who've listened through the years, the people who've gazed at the stars through the years. Uh, it, it it provides a form of human connection that we don't often think think of enough. 
especially in our divided American society right now, yeah. with all our camps that we're divided into. Well, you know, you the key word I heard you say there that helps me with this is uh, awe. Because I, I, mm -hmm. I, was, I was pondering as we were uh, talking earlier, and I was, I was just trying to think of, you know, what is, how do I even um, uh, understand beauty? Obviously, uh, I can't measure it. Um, uh, it's it's not something that admits of measure, which reminds me of the Buddhist concept of the immeasurables. Uh, mm -hmm. But but if I look at a, a sunset, or if I look at the trees in my backyard right now, um, you know that sense of beauty uh, connects me is 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 always very close to a sense of awe, and. Even if I look at a beautiful painting, like, uh, you know, we have a friend who's a uh, artist and we recently got one of his paintings and hung it in our kitchen. And then we framed one of his prints in the, and it's in the kitchen as well. And when I look at these pieces, I'm transfixed for a moment, you know, and, and there mm -hmm. is a, there is a sense of awe, like I'm stopped. The, the ordinary, the ordinary sort of mechanical functioning of my mind stops for a moment and it admits of a, an emotional state that is bigger than me, and and you know I guess awe is the best word I can come to for that. Yeah, and I think we have lost that uh, uh, sense that of awe or being created for wonder. Uh, certainly, when we were children, uh, we were awed all the time <laughs> with. <laughs> with new experiences yeah. and, and appreciated them or right. were scared by them or whatever. But there was still this, this idea of awe. Now we're blasé. Uh, so how do we recapture that kind of uh, childlikeness that opens us to wonder and awe um, in a way that, that feeds our souls, uh, stirs us either to uh, tears of joy or uh, tears of ineffable sadness? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, one of the things I really appreciate about this the the beauty chapter in, in your book is um, is when you remind us that um, contemporary discourse, even in even in most spiritual traditions that I can think of, and on this show, we've you know over ten years we've spoken to people from virtually every tradition you can think of, and. Um, I rarely, if ever, can I remember hearing the idea expressed um, that God's will for us um, can be beautiful. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there will be expressions of the reduction of suffering from Buddhists, or you know, uh, living as God wants us to live, but, but. But this point about that um, it might be true, as you were saying, the, that um, the minister um, used oh, to say at the, end, yes, yeah. uh, at the end of his sermons, um, it might be true that God wants our lives to be beautiful. And I just thought, mm -hmm. oh, that's, a, that's, such a wonderful, that's such a wonderful point to make. Well, you know, if, if you go back to Genesis, and regardless whether you take it as a, uh, you know, a great creation myth or uh, 
the literal truth. The first encounter with the divine we have there is of a creator who who makes things and goes, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Right. That's neat. That's cool. And then says, and I've created you in this image, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as a, as fellow creators. And so this idea uh, that we were made for beauty, not it doesn't say early on in in the Hebrew scriptures that we were made for uh, duty and obligation or efficiency. Right. I mean, what did they do? They sat around and enjoyed, you know, the Garden of Eden. There was all this there to enjoy. Uh, it was beautiful to behold. Right. And I think we often forget that, that we were created for beauty. And so the will of uh, the divine for our lives and indeed for uh, our lives of action, even in this world, are to create beauty, uh, order out of chaos. Uh, uh, to bring food to the hungry, what could be more beautiful than that? Solace to the prisoner. Right. Uh, all those things are beautiful things. And if we do them out of obligation, that's wonderful that they get done. But if they're done out of creating a sense of beauty and seeing the beauty in what we're doing, how much better is that even to think that we were involved in a creative act? And I think of the Japanese uh, notion of wabi-sabi and the senses of sometimes the appreciation of, of beauty and uh, things that are decaying. And, you mm-hmm. know, just I think in the uh, a book you describe coming across this old uh, farmhouse that had uh, yeah. uh, been almost fallen apart and you had your camera ready and you took all these wonderful pictures and it was beautiful. And mm-hmm. yet it was a, a farmhouse that was falling apart, and yet that even decay and even the inevitable, uh, uh, you know, cessation or the ending of things has its own form of beauty, which, yeah. in a way, you know, kind of, I think you you touch on this in the book. It, it, it leads me to kind of ask the question of. Uh, is beauty uh, uh, <laughs> to, actually? I'm gonna. Sounds very corny now. I'm going to say, uh, is beauty really in the eye of the beholder? I mean, that that the everything in life can be seen as beautiful if we are in the right place to receive it that way. I, I think it can be, and um, different. You know, we all have different kind of aesthetic and soulful senses that are going to behold different forms of beauty. So how can we even be open to somebody else's description of uh, something they think is beautiful, uh, even if that's not our uh, beauty cup of tea, per se? How can, again, we learn from others? Well, I think that's actually some of the most inspiring moments sometimes is when actually, I mean, I I just... um I just uh, was was at a, uh, uh, a, a spiritual meeting conducted by a, a, a native Californian uh, 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 Pomo healer, and um, and she was asking people, uh, to my surprise, about their favorite movies, and 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 it was really interesting to watch how people uh, lit up. 
when not when they just said, oh, you know, Victor Victoria or whatever the movie was, um, but but how they described the beauty that they appreciated, um, mm-hmm. you know, in this in this in this favorite movie it was it was a way to kind of tap into something that that people don't always um think about doing yeah well why don't we uh 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 take on truth now all right <laughs> um you know this is interesting uh and i was thinking about this as i was reading the book uh we have a a friend who's a, uh, uh, <clears throat> a former uh, uh, teacher in the Tibetan tradition and now a writer, um, and he's come on the show a number of times. Uh, and we were in one of our recent conversations. We were talking about this the, the phrase "it rings true," mm. and you know we were even thinking about that in the sense of like even in music, you know, a note can ring true, or or not. And a situation can ring true, or a uh, uh, presentation, an idea can ring true. There's all these ways in which, uh, again, in a way that's not really measurable, we can encounter truth. And what I liked about your depiction is that you, you're really getting at that aspect of truth, not not the kind of the literal aspect of can I verify this yeah. and can I measure this and can I prove that this is an accurate statement. But it's something. It's more of a feeling. Uh, a feeling, a certain kind of feeling, and it had, and it, it's different. It's different than the awe of beauty. That's what I, I I love about this. You know, these four elements. They each they each stand on their own. So maybe. So does that is that uh, resonate with what you were um, um, uh, looking at and trying to express about the, in the section on truth? Yeah, especially in this day when um, there's so much talk about what truth is. You know what's tr- yeah, there's fake news, there's, you know, there's truthiness, you know, there's all this talk yeah. about truth. <laughs> right. And, uh, but how do we move beyond intellectual or political uh, kind of agreement about something uh, into what feels true in the deepest part of our being? Um, how is this true to my life? Um, and where I am at this point in my life. Um, um, and and I do talk about when we built our post-to-beep home that we live in, about checking it uh, for that kind of true with, you know, level lines and, and so forth to make sure that the, the structure was inherently true to itself, that it was what it was supposed to be. And later in that chapter, I also talk about uh, Thomas Aquinas talking about uh, for us to say a stone is as uh, the true nature of a stone is that it behaves like a stone, uh, which which most of us think is the stones not being beings per se, but the sense of oh, what is true to who to our nature, uh, what is true to the nature of a Brett Bill or. Sue or Rob uh, that resonates deep in our souls that says, yes, this could be a good thing for me to embark on because this is true to who I am. And there's nothing uh, ringing false about it. There's no uh, 
off note or a broken piece of the bell, which makes it not true to who I am. But it's, it is a kind of uh, deep-seated, soulful truth is beyond uh, beyond opinion, beyond feeling, but uh, that kind of truth that we know when we when we see it and hear it or feel it deep in our in the innermost parts of our being. Well, you, you on page forty-five, you have a. You, I'll quote you: "The kind of true that fits with integrity into our lives." I really like that the use of the word integrity there, because it it points to something that is uh, it's tr- something fits that makes makes the integrity of, of the life fit uh, be stronger actually and that's um mm-hmm. that i think that's an important thing but in that chapter i also appreciate that you actually ask uh, the question does the church support or hinder us in living true mm-hmm. because and i think that's a that's a wonderful um question to ask uh these days because we're in a we live in a context where actually the the value of uh, religious and spiritual impulses is definitely not generally accepted. It's 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 uh, contentious, um, but and and then also the behavior of of congregations of of uh, authorities structures within you know within uh, religious groups is um, is also contentious as well. And I and I think uh, uh, and I appreciate that you um, um, talk about the faith community there um, because because that that takes it away from just is this authoritarian um, structure uh, measurably true or not, but instead it brings it back to what are what is a group of human beings saying and doing. And mm-hmm. how does how does that how does that work for me or not? Yeah, and I think at times we uh, when we create structures, uh, even congregations or Quaker meetings or or whatever they are, uh, to feed our spiritual lives too easily. Uh, those structures, those organizations, can begin to. Uh, exist uh, in a way that they no longer feed us, but we're supposed to feed them. And <laughs> that's a good, that's it a good seems point. to be that the true life in a, mm-hmm. in a living spiritual congregation, no matter what its faith tradition, is one where um, people come and are gathered and leave empowered um, to live their fullest life as they were created to live with the blessing of that group as opposed to filling slots on a nominating committee or making sure that somebody uh, is in charge of stoking the fire. Not that those things don't need to be done, but when those things rise to the level of what we're concerned about most, somehow we miss the boat. Uh, and our, our spiritual life uh, traditions really have to get back to, to nurturing the souls of those who gather. Uh, 
to enable them to be the people uh, that they feel the divine has created them to be. Well, I I, I agree, and and the um, uh, what's what's important about that is uh, is is the directionality that you started off with your your comment um, uh, a moment ago in terms of um, where are we put it, where are we putting our attention first, and what what direction are we um, serving, and. Um, you know the and and the other thing that was interesting to me i mean the, the comment that you just made about you know who's on this committee or whatever or whatever um as you say that those that's necessary stuff but that is um that needs to be in service of other things and i'm and i'm um you know i i grew up a uh, roman catholic uh and you know there's um I didn't. I, I. I didn't remain in the in that tradition. Not that I feel I've uh, left it in a certain sense either. But um, I didn't remain in that tradition. But I see that that there are all those roles you're talking about. But then there's also the roles that have been become codified over time, mm-hmm. which um, uh, uh, have uh, which missed the mark in 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 my opinion, and uh, and so. Asking these questions is is about the truth of these things is important. It seems to me, and 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 the other thing is, uh, you know, I like your your approach about uh, which fits with my own view that that um, that asking questions is an important, or even central part of the spiritual life, and it doesn't mean that we have to settle on an answer, mm-hmm. uh, but. Um, keep asking questions. Or so. that there is an answer, uh, mm, right. per se. Perhaps there's a variety of of, of answers, uh, depending on the time that we're, we're in. I know for our own Quaker meeting that the answers to some of the questions we ask uh, now are far different than the answers were 50 years ago to those similar questions about our future and so forth, because times have changed. Our mission is different in our community because the community has changed. So how do we constantly be asking, are we, are we true to who we're called to be now? And are we, are we empowering uh, those of us who, who worship here to be the people uh, to, to, to minister in this world today? Yeah, and and on the the personal level, I also appreciated uh, the discussion about uh, uh, just jobs you've had, you know, just professional jobs <laughs> where you you ask, you know, is this still mm-hmm. true for me? And uh, yeah. you know, it's a funny. I I wrestle with that all the time because I I work in the uh, a corporate engineering world and and. You know, ask. You know, is it is it true? Is it you know? And 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 I um, try to be as open as possible to the answer. I mean, I, I, I uh, find I keep doing it, and uh, it seems like I keep finding something that uh, uh, rings true, as it were. Um, but it but reading the book just made me reflect on that, and I think it's a helpful thing for us to look at anything that we're doing and just ask the question, not not. Not as a challenge and not as a complaint, but just you know just as a meditation, is it true? Is it still true? 
Well, it's a kind of variation on the Ignatian form of examining. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, just a kind of, I love that prayer because it's a daily check-in of what happens throughout the day. But how often do we check the larger uh, things of our life yeah. uh, as far as our our vocations or uh, where we're living or any number of things? Uh, is it still true? Yeah. Well, we're running out of time here. We have two more topics to address. <laughs> it's, it's so life. I, I just wanted to say I... I um, you have a quote on page 88. The life God calls us to is meant to impart exuberance, enthusiasm, vivacity. Hear, hear. And, um, and how little is that often um, expressed in, in so many um, spiritual and religious traditions? But but I but you know our own teacher had a kept would keep repeating the uh, admonition have fun, and, yeah. And and I think that's a that's that's a crucial element in uh, in any endeavor that's supposed to um, feed us. Well, I I think often when we think of uh, spiritual life, especially communal spiritual life, at times we think of it as obligation. Mm-hmm. Uh, like tomorrow morning, it will be time to get up for me and go. I must go to Quaker meeting. Well, you know, is that if it's not life giving, why am I going? Right. Uh, um, you know, when people would drop away from our meeting, uh, my concern was always are we doing something that is keeping this from being life giving from you? But if, if we're not and it's, you're just in a different place, then. Take time off with our blessing, uh, because this should be a life-giving endeavor. It should be something that you come to because, uh, you know, you're going to be uh, uh, spiritually renewed and fed. And if it's not, then don't come. Uh, and how do we how do we make sure the things that we do in our daily lives really are the things that give us life, and we're not just doing them out of obligation or how do we find ways to see that they can be life-giving experiences instead of drudgery and i use the example of brother lawrence at the end of the book who you know he's doing dishes and mending sandals that hardly sounds like life-giving work and yet he found a way to make it so so how do we how do we find a way to make it so if it's not and if it's it can't be made so. How do we might maybe step back and say, it is time for me uh, to find something new, which is life-giving for me, Well, from which is my, hard to do. Yeah, absolutely. For, from my anthropological uh, background, that was my uh, uh, academic pursuit. Um, I, can, I can say that, that, you know, one big contrast between life today and the 21st century for most human beings and life 10,000 years ago or more is that there there was no there was no uh scheduling for efficiency as far as we can discern in other words people did things because it occurred to them to do it in 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 the moment and and that's i think that's why this question that you that you raise this point about life being uh, exuberant, enthusiastic, and vivacious um, is a way to help remedy 
the 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 situation that we've that we find ourselves in after a long history of uh, doing things that seemed sensible at the time, and then they, it becomes rote. Mm-hmm. And I think another ingredient to make things life-giving is humor, as well. Uh, you know, uh, help us not take ourselves and the situation too seriously. Uh, uh, and so to, uh, to a way to inject life can be uh, to come with the sense of, of humor and lightness about us that uh, perhaps we don't always embrace as much as we should. And so the, a friend, a, okay. an example is a friend of mine who's also a Quaker minister sent me a red nose, clown <laughs> nose to wear. Um, and so I did it one day when I was uh, uh, the, the uh, director, the chief operating officer of a major not-for-profit in downtown Indianapolis. I wore that thing the whole day. And, uh, and you know, it's really hard to, to have a serious staff meeting and take everything like it's life or death when the person chairing the meeting is wearing a clown nose. So uh, we actually were very productive and, and uh, everybody enjoyed it more, uh, except one person. But uh, it was, you know, we don't do that enough. To, you know, we just take ourselves in debt earnest all the time. Yeah. And then um, uh, uh, Love, the last of the, uh, the the four, we think, you know, a lot of people have ideas of what love is, but it's all, it, it tends, but um, it tends to be very uh, oriented towards like, I love this or I love that. You know, they, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, about affinity but you craft a vision of love that uh, is uh, goes beyond the, the needs of the individual. Maybe you could say a little bit more about you know how love figures into uh, the abundant life. Well, some things that have challenged me uh, my whole life about love is, of course, uh, you know, for one, our societies. Uh, feeding is pictures of romantic love or um, uh, that sort of love is sort of a feeling, um, which, of course, those feelings uh, can change or or um, wax and wane or, or whatever. With the idea of... Um, what does it mean to be motivated by love in all I do? What does what does that look like? And the Apostle Paul, when he writes in Corinthians, this whole list of what the attributes of love are, are you know, are kindness and caring and compassion and patience and all the things that I don't associate with myself. How can I live a life uh, of love like that? And how do I do... Uh, the things I do out of love instead of some other uh, more base uh, motive. Uh, what I can, I'll do this because here's going to be my, since uh, this seems to be the phrase of the of the the year, my quid pro quo. <laughs> what, what am I going to get out? Um, and one of my favorite stories that I heard as a young 
Quaker was that of uh, the uh, Quaker uh, anti-slavery worker, worker John Woman, but also he was involved in uh, Native American affairs, and he went to Western Pennsylvania to meet with a tribe, and there was conflict out there, and. Someone said, so, you know, are you, wh- why are you going? And he replied that the first motion uh, was love. He was moved to go out of love. And I thought, wow, you're not moved to go out there and make peace. You're not moved to educate these uh, poor savages in, you know, in the vernacular. He's going because of love. And and when he was pressed on that, he actually said, because uh, they said, well, don't you have something to teach these people? And he said, no, I think they might have something to teach me. And so how can I uh, learn to live so that my actions more often than not, and I'm not saying I'm very good at it, but how do they then proceed from love um, and will result in the people that um, – I encounter in life knowing that I'm doing this out of a loving spirit and uh, not because of some um, altruistic uh, but superior kind of position, which I think we do too often. We know what uh, some poor group, I I don't care whether we mean, you know, uh, economically poor or anything, but what some other group needs instead of really caring about them as individuals and trying to learn how we might be uh, allies, uh, be alongside them in their in their lives. And, and, uh, and I think if we move more from a position of love, um, which... Uh, Jesus said the greatest, or Paul said, the greatest of these is love. This this idea of love being the prime motivator to our lives changes uh, uh, how we approach lives and what we say yes to and what we say no to. Well, <clears throat> thank you very much for that. Um there's many more questions that we could uh, ask, but we are really getting to the end of our times. Uh, so uh, maybe you could just say briefly uh, how people can uh, get in touch with you if they're interested in uh, continuing uh, a conversation or contact of some uh, sort, if you have a website or if anything along those lines. Yeah, I do have a really ugly website since <laughs> I manage it myself. I bet it's be- I bet it's beautiful. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, Brentville B R E N T B I L L dot C O M, but I'm also on Facebook and I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter. If <laughs> wow, folks would like to find me via social media, and I'm always happy. There's a contact form on my. Uh, webpage you can send me email as well and of course it's, it's in my books my email address is in my books as well great well we'll we'll put the uh, website and the you know the facebook contact on the uh, webpage when we post the podcast for this show 
great. But, uh, you know, we really want to appreciate you taking the time. I know uh, you're get battling a cold here, and so I uh, uh, appreciate you taking the uh, uh, time to talk and, with us. And spending the energy, which yeah. when you're recovering oh. is uh, appreciated on our part, for uh, sure. It's, it's been delightful for me. Well, good. I mean, we really appreciate it, and we really appreciated uh, reading your work. And uh, uh, you're, if you're in the area again, uh, you know, let us know, and uh, we hope to have you at Mindy Rivers Books and Tea again, and uh, maybe we could even get you into the studio live. I'd love to do that. I plan to be back sometime this summer. Oh, excellent. Oh, wonderful. Well, well thank you, Jay Brent Bill. Thank you so much for appearing on The Mystical Positivist. Well, thank you, uh, Rob and Stu. I, I really appreciate the, the invitation. Great. I'm going to turn you over to Rob now offline, and I'm going to uh, do some uh, concluding announcements. So thanks again. Bye-bye. Sure. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I have been speaking by telephone with Jay Brent Bill, a Quaker minister, retreat leader, writing coach, and photographer. He's written more than 20 books, including his latest, Beauty, Truth, Life, and Love, Four Essentials for the Abundant Life. Next week on the show, we feature a telephone conversation with Roger R. Jackson about his latest book, Mind Seeing Mind, Mahamudra and the Galuk Tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. Roger R. Jackson is the John W. Nason Professor of Asian Studies and Religion at Carleton College in Minnesota, where he teaches the religions of South Asia and Tibet. He has published many articles on philosophy, ritual, meditative practices, and poetry of Indian and Tibetan Buddhism, and has written or co-edited several books, including Is Enlightenment Possible?, Tibetan Literature, Buddhist Theology, Tantric Treasures, and Mahamudra, and the uh, uh, Bhagyud tradition, um, and he is the past editor of the Journal of the International Association of Buddhist Studies and is currently co-editor of Indian International Journal of Buddhist Studies. So tune in for that show next Saturday, January 25th from 4 to 6 p.m. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, we have two events to mention uh, for next week. The Thursdays at Many Rivers event in Sebastopol is Atheopaganism with Mark A. Green. That's Thursday, January 23rd at 7.30 p.m. at Many Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Thousands of years ago, people used myths to explain things they didn't understand, but then came science, which has done a much better job of it. While these dated traditions continue to insist on the validity of their myths, over the recent centuries, science has proved a much more powerful a much more powerful set of tools for determining the nature of reality. And at once has a discovery turned out to prove that some phenomenon in the universe was caused by gods, by prayer, or by magic. But does this mean that religion is simply useless and should be dispensed with? No, not at all. Atheopaganism is an earth-honoring religious path that accepts the description of the world that science has provided us without, additional, without addition of invisible beings or powers that incorporates progressive and environmental values, rituals, and myths, seasonal celebrations, and activism. Come learn more. Mark Green is an activist, writer, poet, musician, and lover of the earth, known locally as the founding director of Sonoma County Conservation Action. He developed the organization into the largest environmental group on the north coast of California, for which he was named Sonoma County Environmentalist of the Year in 1997. He's the creator of the Atheopagan Path and publishes at atheopaganism.org, which is in pagans.com naturalpagans.com, and humanisticpaganism.com.
and serves as administrator of the online Atheopagan community on Facebook. He lives in the watershed of the Russian River with the delightful Nemea and Miri, the very soft cat. Then on Friday, January 24th at Many Rivers, as part of an ongoing class that has begun in January, Angels the Native Way with Native Californian uh, healer Trina Vega. That's on Fridays on uh, 9.15, excuse me, 7.15 to 9.15 p.m. Um, and that this week it'll be January 24th. Trina writes, I have experienced angels my entire life of a short journey on earth of 62 years. I will assist you in linking with and hearing your own angels. Come join us in really getting to know your own angels, spirit guides, and guardian angels. I will also include hearing from past loved ones. Let's start off the new year with opening to the spiritual native realm of angels. Please contact me at 707-391-7373, and I will be more than happy to answer any questions. Many blessings, Trina Vega. Trina is a Native American healer who practices a diverse menu of healings from the Native Grandmother Ocean to Healing with Angels. She's an intuitive reader and has practiced and offered readings for 30-plus years. She is the youthful and energetic grandmother to 18 grandchildren. Thank you for joining us once again for the Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday. We leave you with music from a CD called Woodworks, performed by the Danish String Quartet. This is a piece called Waltz after Lassa in Lubu. Enjoy.